0: First Kings chapter two tonight, uh, Lord, we do just lift up this study and, um, and Lord, you just know the, the word you have for the people here. And I'm just so confident that, that you've drawn each person that you've wanted to be here for this specific study and, and Lord, while it's historical and while there's good stories and it's narrative and, and, uh. It's stuff that's happened in the past, like Stuart was saying thousands of years before us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts for today. And Lord, I pray where our hearts are hard, that you would just soften, Lord. And just uh, the mighty God that you are, and in the past ways that you've shown up as your word has been taught, and you've changed lives, and you've broken barriers where men and women have been in bondage for years lord do that tonight god and where people have been stuck in their ways uh lord we've seen you pull them up out of the miry clay and put a new song in their hearts and lord we pray you do that here tonight lord where people are downcast and discouraged we just pray that you would just put them in your arms lord and comfort their hearts god just do all that's in your heart for tonight we lay aside our agendas and just ask that your heart would just be done tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 2, a new book, 1 Kings. um, You know, maybe you weren't here two weeks ago when we did the introduction to this book, and so I encourage you to get online and listen as there was, you know, about a 40-minute introduction to uh, the book and the author and the times and the seasons and the people and the places and so just uh, really encourage you for for your own sake and for the next, you know, 20-some weeks, you know, hopefully it won't, whatever, Lord willing, whatever he wants, uh, you'll have an understanding of what's going on and why it was written this way and why are there two books of kings and, and you know, and, you know, so listen, put it on your iPod. You guys are all technologically advanced, you know. And you get on your treadmill, just listen to that study. and um, And so we're in chapter two and it says that, in the days of David, uh, drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. So, you know, David is, you know, around 70, 75 year old, years old at this point. And uh, he's, uh, last chapter, we know that he handed over the kingdom to his youngest son or, or one of his youngest sons Solomon and it's not really easy to tell how old uh, he, Solomon is at this point but the younger end of the estimates would say that he's about 15 years old um, inheriting the kingdom of Israel uh, and so you could only imagine think back to where you were at 15 years old and imagine having a kingdom given to you and uh, imagine being a 75-year-old man handing over your kingdom to you know, a, a roughly a 15-year-old boy. And, and actually, we see from some of David's last words that he was a little bit not concerned because he knew that, that Solomon had been ordained by God to be the king, but there's just little things that David says that are like, all right, buddy, man up, you know. And, uh, and because you're young, you know, I encourage you this, we read in First Chronicles, he kind of says to Solomon, and so um, there's just that, that charge, and I love that word charge, and I think a lot of times I probably, um, you know, I probably have a wrong interpretation of that word maybe, but I think of the word charge as like, let's go, you know, kind of like in a military sense, you know, and really it means a command, I'm, I'm commanding you to, to be a man, David's charging uh solomon but i kind of think of it as let's go you know like be a man like more of a a herald and a follow what i've done and do it and be bold and be brave and and um you know so be a man is what he says and it's such an ex- exhortation to uh young men like myself uh i don't really see many teenage uh Guys in this room, but young men and, and even, you know, uh, middle-aged men, like, let's be a man. Let's act like the men that the Lord wants us to be. Let's, you know, be the, the head of the house spiritually. Let's man up and the obligations that we know that we have or the responsibilities that we know that we have as men, uh, as servants of Christ. It's time to step up and, and take that charge. And so Solomon's 15 years old and he knows that he's younger or, or roughly 15 years old. I don't say that as fact, but even in the next chapter, we're going to see Solomon as a new king. This is how he describes himself by basically saying, I'm just a child is what he says. I'm just a child and I need wisdom to run this nation. And, uh, and so he himself, he, he basically called himself that a child. And so be strong, be a man. Um prove yourself to be a man. I taught my one and a half year old boy to slam his fist down on the table and to say, be a man. <laughs> and uh people didn't know that I and I'd say, Hey, it, let me show you something cute that my son does. Go ahead, show him, Russell. A man! That's what he'd say. That's a a man. And at first he'd hurt his hand, he'd slap it like this, and I no, you gotta make a fist and, and hit the table. And um, and then he'd say, I'm tough. I'm tough. You know, I'm like, yeah, tell him, you know. And, um, and I, there's a man, a pastor at a Calvary in Bangalore, Maine named Ken Graves. I don't know if anybody knows him, but he looks like one of David's mighty men of valor. And he literally, his voice is this deep when he talks, you know, and just strong and big beard. And, and his specialty is men's conferences. And, uh, I'll never forget. And I'd get on online and I'd blast this message out into the hallways of the church of him saying, it's time for men to stand up and be a man. I'm tired of, wear, of this sweater wearing, sweater wearing, picnic basket carrying, poem quoting, you know, girls' pants wearing, you know, and, and, um, I'm just like volume up, you know, but, you know, it's, it's time for us to be a man, you know, and not necessarily in, you know, completely in the way we dress, but, um, a little bit. And, uh, but, you know, being bold and being strong. And that's why David says to Solomon, Be strong, be strong therefore, and prove yourself to be a man. And it's it's language that just resonates throughout the scriptures in Joshua. And um and, and before we even flip to Joshua, let's just go ahead and read verse three as well. And keep the charge of the Lord. So be strong, prove yourself a man, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways. To keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And so the language it just it's similar to that of um Moses' charge to Joshua in Joshua chapter one, verses six and seven. And most of you know it, it's just it's there, it's in it's branded in your brain where joshua is charged joshua is charged be strong and of good courage for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which i swore to their fathers to give them only be strong there it is just the next verse only be strong as a man of god this isn't just to joshua it's to all of us men be strong in Very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. And we see from David's charge to Solomon and Moses' charge to Joshua that in hand with being a strong, courageous man is keeping the word of God. They go hand in hand. That's what makes a real man. You know, I don't care if you wear pink, man, as long as you are holding tight to the word of God. You know, it's a thing nowadays in the breast cancer awareness that there's a lot of rodeos where cowboys are encouraged to wear pink, you know, to, to, for breast cancer awareness. And there's these rodeos are called, I'm tough enough to wear pink. Fine. Wear pink, man, but be tough and be strong in the Lord and hold on to his word and don't compromise. And don't go to the left or to the right, but stay firm in it like Daniel did in chapter 1, verse 8 of Daniel, where it says, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's delicacies. And Daniel was a eunuch, but he was so brave that he stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and said, I purpose in my heart that I will not defile myself with the king's delicacies. And as David goes the way of all the world, he has a couple feet in the grave and he gives this final charge to Solomon. He says, be strong and prove yourself a man by keeping the commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 9, it's just similar, but it says, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you may do. And it says there in verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 2, You know, after he says, you know, keep his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, his testimonies. And all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul. He said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. It's just that theme that's running through these books, isn't it? When you're obedient, there's such blessing and it, and it resonates. It must be what Psalm was thinking or the psalmist David was thinking about when he wrote Psalm 1. The whole chapter is six verses long and most of you have it memorized, I'm sure. And you can flip there right now if you want to. But it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners. "...nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. But the ungodly are not so." They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And so when you're obedient to the word of God, to every statute, not just some of it, not just picking and choosing, but understanding that the word of God is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof and correction and equipping and all righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And as the man of God is in this text daily, daily the spirit convicts the man of God to be strong in a plethora of different areas. There's more than just one area that a man needs to be obedient in. I finally got a handle on my lust. All right, well, your righteousness training doesn't just end there. You know, now let's deal truthfully with the finances. Or now let's put out the leaven in your house that comes through the television screen. You know, or let's take that radio station off the dial because you know it's causing you to stumble or, you know, whatever it might be. But when you're grounded in the word, you're like that tree that's planted by, you know, the water and it's sustained and it's strong, but... When you're disobedient and you're wicked, you're like that chaff that just blows away in the wind. So keep the commandments of the Lord. Walk in his ways, verse 3 says. It's just different ways that um, David describes the commandments of the Lord. So he says, walk in his ways, which speaks of the Lord's customs and the Lord's mode of action. So walk, walk step by step in his customs. In his mode of actions, keep his statutes, keep his commandments, keep his judgments, keep his testimonies, stick to the word. And if you do, you'll prosper in whatever you do and wherever you turn. And in First Chronicles 22, verse 9, flip over there to the right. It's just one book over to the right. You know, it's kind of that farewell uh, charge uh, from David We just kind of get a little more insight to some of these last words. And David is telling Solomon what the Lord has told him. And it says, behold, you know, the Lord is telling David this, but David's telling it to his son. This is what the Lord said. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord, your God, as he has said to you, only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord, your God. Then you will prosper. If you take care to fulfill the statutes, if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel, be strong. You know, he's remembering Joshua chapter one. Be strong and of good courage and do not fear or be dismayed. And then in verse five of chapter two of first Kings, Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel to Abner, the son of Ner and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. And so Joab was a murderer, a cold blooded murderer, and he killed people not in times of war, you know, which is permissible by the Lord, but in times of peace, he would just cold blooded uh, murder people. And, uh, and David knows that this guy, Joab, he's just been a ticking time bomb the whole time. And, and you know, he's, he's unfaithful and there's wickedness in him and it's time for him to be judged. And Joab was David's nephew. And so it's just interesting how there's, just, there's times in the scripture where you just see just, there was such a need for confrontation. You know, David, we studied, uh, was it last week? I think it was last week how he was a great maybe it was a couple weeks ago a, a a great warrior and a great military general and a great king but a horrible father and at times a horrible friend a horrible uncle and just let things go without correction as we studied 2 weeks ago with Adonijah and how Adonijah David's son just needed a good spanking you know so the, it's like your your brother Absalom screwed up and I've learned from him and I'm not going to let you lead a rebellion against me as well but um, so Joab, and it's just sad to hear that about Joab because Joab had such potential. You know, as, as you go back to First Samuel, or excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 2, you see that David is laying siege against Jerusalem, against the Jebusites that have inhabited Jerusalem. And David says, he knew that there was, um, and actually, uh, Lana, if you could go ahead and flip to the map of, or it's not a map, I'm sorry. The um, overhead view of Israel, right there. Oh, that's not it. Go back. Um, this is the overhead view of Israel. and at, Oh, there we go. <laughs> but um, basically, right about, we studied, uh, gosh, was it two weeks ago already? Uh, about the different springs. And right here, there's a spring. I believe it's the, um, the spring of uh, Ahel, I want to say, but I'm probably wrong. And then there's a spring over here right into the city of David, And it's incredible that um, Hezekiah later dug a tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel from here this spring clear over to here uh, to another spring that was walled off so that during times of war, people could crawl down in there and get water all the time. But the interesting thing is before that, there was a spring right here and it was the only entrance to this walled off city. And in 2 Samuel chapter two, David says, whoever crawls up through the spring, you know, the source of water, the only kind of undefended area, probably had just a little, you know, screen or something, kind of keeping people out, you know, whoever crawls up through there and opens up the gate so we can get in and conquer uh, Jerusalem, he'll be my commanding general. And so someday when we go to Israel, we'll go to this spring, the spring of Gihon, and um, we'll stand where Joab snuck through and crawled up, you know, it's about, you know, the size of this stage, this area where Joab crawled up through. It's just an exciting place to be. And then you crawl through this tunnel that's about, you know, a half mile, Hezekiah's tunnel and come out this other spring. But Joab had such potential. He was this brave guy that snuck through the, the, uh, the water, the pool there, went up, knocked off a couple guards, opened the gate, and then Uh, That allowed David to conquer Jerusalem And that area became called the city of David Just south or just to the left of the giant walled area That you're looking at there But um, So the potential that was there for this brave man And yet we see that he never had a heart for the Lord He never had a heart for the Lord He never was soft to the things of the Lord He never kept the commandments of the Lord And he was actually just a full-blown murderer Without any sort of care about it and if you'll flip to second samuel chapter 3 verse 22 uh, we see where he murdered abner most of you remember but uh just in verse 27 actually is where we're going to read second samuel three twenty-seven. now when abner had returned to hebron joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of asahel his brother afterward when david heard it he said my kingdom and i are guiltless before the lord forever of the blood of abner the son of ner let it rest on the head of joab and on all his father's house and let there never fail to be in the house of joab one who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread so abner you remember was trying to come from israel you know from the house of saul and bring peace and he met with David, and David said, "Yes, this sounds good. You know, let's have peace between Judah and and uh, between Israel." And and Joab was so angry because Abner just killed his brother Asahel, and in fact, you just get done reading about that encounter. And so he sneaks in the night and he he acts like that he's going to greet him, and then he just full blown stabs him there. And a similar thing happens clear over in chapter twenty with Amasa in verse eight, where they were at the large stone. Chapter 20, verse 8, they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon. Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again, and thus he died. And so David talks about those two accounts, uh, you know, Joab murdering Abner and Amasa, and he, he doesn't mention, although he does say, what all the things that Joab did to me, but, he, you know, no one really knows. Does David know that Joab was the one that killed his son, Absalom? As you remember in 2 Samuel 18... As Absalom, David's son, was attacking David, uh, David was going out to battle against his son. And David said to all of his commanding generals, when you find my son out there on the battlefield, when you find Absalom, deal kindly with him. Don't kill him. And <clears throat> You guys know the story where Absalom is riding his mule in a thick forest and he has this thick head of hair. It's about five pounds worth of hair. And as he's riding his mule under the tree, his hair gets stuck or his head gets stuck in the tree. And his mule walks out from underneath him and leaves him hanging there in a forest in the middle of war. (laughs) And these commanders of David found him, um, but weren't going to kill him. They were going to deal kindly with him and, you know, go get David and say, Hey, your son's hanging in that tree over there. But Joab got angry with them and said, Why haven't you killed him? He's hanging right there. They said, no way. We know what David said and you know what David said. And Joab was impatient. He grabbed three spears and thrust three spears through Absalom's heart. And so there he killed David's son. So who knows if David knew, but he probably didn't know that that was Joab um, that killed him. And so don't let his gray hair go down to the throne in peace. Verse 7 you know, David just kind of taken care of thinking about a few people that, you know, are on his mind at his deathbed. Uh, show kindness, verse seven, first Kings chapter two, verse seven. Show kindness to the son of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And you guys remember Barzillai in second Samuel chapter 17, uh, this 80 year old man who, As David was fleeing from Jerusalem, he would bring, uh, let me just read it to you, he'd bring beds and basins, 80-year-old man laboring for this King David who he loved, beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So this old guy just... Loves David, brings him, and labors to bring him all these things so the people don't starve to death. And then later, when David comes back from the battle against his son Absalom, comes back into Jerusalem, uh, Barzillai, an 80-year-old man, comes with him and is celebrating his return. And, and David just is just so appreciative of Barzillai's offerings and, and gifts that he says, come back with me to my to my." palace in jerusalem and i'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life and you guys remember that Barzillai said i'm 80 years old i don't even know what feels good anymore you know my my tongue doesn't work my eyes don't work my feet don't work you know like um you know i'm not even going to be able to enjoy it i just want to go back to my home and and die there in, in peace with my family but take my my servant and you know deal kindly with him and so david took uh barzillai's servant and dealt kindly with him and um and so barzillai he's just so kind um so you also in return show kindness to his sons and let them be those who eat at your table in verse 8 and see how you have with you shimei the son of gira a benjamite from behurim who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when i went to my but he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do with him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. And so you guys remember that story as well. Shimei in Second Samuel chapter 16, verse 5, you know, when you have an understanding of, of Israel, um in Jerusalem but basically at the base of this picture is the Mount of Olives kind of rounding off and then it slopes back up to the Temple Mount there if you guys hopefully are kind of following me but you can just picture David leaving Jerusalem with his you know his loyal followers as Absalom is coming in I believe it was from the south coming in to take over and David flees up this mountain and heads out to the area, of the wilderness, out by the Dead Sea. But you can almost uh, retrace the path there with your eyes. And um, as they're going, here's Shimei. Shimei, who is one of Saul's offspring. And he's angry and he starts, sees David, and he starts throwing stones and kicking up dust and cursing at him and just, you know, going crazy as he sees David. And I believe it was um, a Amasa, Oh, excuse me, it's Abishai said, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. (laughs) And David, you know, just fleeing Jerusalem and in a time of just humiliation and he's humbled and he's fleeing and this guy's cursing at him and he has these loyal followers who are seeing him in this moment of really shame almost as he's fleeing the city of David. And as these cursings are going forth, he says, no, no. And the Lord's probably letting him curse me, you know. And maybe the Lord will just see my humiliation and that this guy's cursing me. And maybe the Lord will show kindness on me because I'm just so humiliated right now. And so just all the way out of Jerusalem, here's this cursing and yelling and get out of here. And, ah! <laughs> you know? and then on the way back into Jerusalem, after David is victorious, coming back down the Mount of Olives, here he is. Oh, David! Oh! Oh, oh, hey, remember a couple months ago and oh, all those things that I said? Oh, I am so sorry. I just, I was in sin and oh, it was wrong of me to say that. And please have mercy. And and David, who had all the right in the world to just lop off Shimei's head, very wisely just refrained and said, I'm not going to kill you. And just the wisdom in that in that there was peace being made that day between Israel and Judah, which later ended up not being made because of Shebna. But that's a whole other story. But So he decides not to kill Shimei, even though he was such a, a curse to him then. But now, and actually you remember two weeks ago when we started 1 Kings, in chapter 1 of 1 Kings, David's next living son, um, Adonijah, starts to lead a revolt similar to that that Absalom led. So here's almost deja vu again as Adonijah tries to make himself king. And it was an opportunity for Shimei to again start cursing David and throwing stones at David and go over and side with David's son Adonijah, but he didn't. You remember it specifically mentions there in chapter one that Shimei stayed in Jerusalem and stayed with David and stayed loyal to David. And it's interesting that it's mentioned there in chapter 1. I mean, why would it even mention that? I mean, it's like, who else are we going to list that didn't go with Adonijah? But it did. It mentioned Shimei there, that he didn't curse David, but he stayed there with David. Now, David's on his deathbed, and he's thinking things through. So he's probably thinking about his life. You know, he's having flashbacks, he's thinking about his time in the Boy Scouts. You know, he's thinking about his time, you know, doing those bake sales and all that. You know, And, and he thinks about... The time Absalom kicked him out of Jerusalem, and he's thinking about Shimei, and he's thinking about the rock that hit him in the back, you know, and, and he's thinking about Shimei's countenance the last few years, and it, and it's just similar to Shimei wasn't against David per se, but he wasn't for David, and there was something there. Perhaps Shimei would kind of murmur about David. Perhaps Shimei would kind of, you know, be critical about David, or Kind of would just kind of give these looks to David every now and then. Something about Shimei, David noticed, wasn't right. And it was not going to be good for Solomon to have Shimei still alive. And so he says, even though I made peace with him, you don't let him go down to the grave in peace. He needs to be judged for his attitude and what he did. And uh, so... (laughs) Lots of recaps, I know, but just good to to be familiar with the names and the places and the people. Um, So Shimei, don't let him go down to the grave in peace. And uh, in verse 10, so David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron and in Jerusalem he reigned, reigned 33 years. So kind of a monument for us in our reading of through the scriptures king david dies so it's a big you know it's a big mark on the timeline of israel's history king david dying and after having reigned uh 70 years as king um now it's interesting that uh david was buried in the city of david which is um i'm sorry i didn't grab a laser pointer (laughs) But uh, let me just real quick show you that, you know, this is generally called the Temple Mount area, okay? Uh, this is the Temple Wall around here. Uh, this is the Temple Platform. And right where the Dome of the Rock is, just to the right, actually, was where the Temple sat, okay? So the sacrifices and all that. Mount of Olives right in here. Brook Kidron uh, right here, which we're going to read about in, in this chapter and then south of the temple wall, or excuse me, of the, the city wall was the city of David. And if I was tall enough, right there is, uh, is the city of David area. And so David, after he died, he was buried in the city of David. And the interesting thing about that, go ahead and uh, flip back to that, uh, the tomb of David picture there, Lana. And uh, it's, you know... It's believed that this is where David was buried. Um, There'd been so many conquests of Jerusalem after David died that things got covered up and things like that. But as you, as the archaeologists have gone in there, you know, they believe that this is the tomb of David. And the interesting thing is, is that you, as you go there in Israel, there's a, um, an upstairs to this area, which is, it's believed it's where the upper room is. And so it's just so amazing as you go there and you, you know, you see David's tomb and then you go upstairs and go ahead and flip uh, upstairs. This is where the upper room was. Of course, it's been, you know, replastered, but it's the area. And it's so cool to be there and to think, you know, David is buried under here. Then, you know, the son of David came, instituted communion basically in this room. And it's also where the promise of the father came uh, you know, the Holy Spirit to empower us uh, to live for him as witnesses. And uh, so that same area, just, a, you know, a little more trip to Israel for you. But um, but by uh, Peter's day, uh, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, that David was dead and buried and his tomb was with us to this day. And it's interesting because in 1999, they were digging down into that area where David's tomb was and they found four different floors that went clear back through history all the way through down to the Roman days to where there's original Roman first century flooring and there's this inscriptions there on the floor and it's just interesting that ins- Christians use that room where David's tomb was and in and, and the up room they'd use as worship where um, they it, go ahead and do that messianic symbol they found a carving and, and actually eight different artifacts with this symbol on it there in, on the floor of David's tomb. And it's the menorah. You know, you know it is, is a Jewish symbol and meaning God is light. And uh, it also speaks of, of the power of the Holy Spirit is what the oil in the menorah symbols. And then there's David's star. And the two triangles are the two uh, letters in Hebrew for David's name. Basically two D's two d's turn so that they make a star that's what that star is and then there's the christian fish which is known as the ichthus which is an acronym for jesus christ son of god savior and so basically what this is is in david's tomb christians worship jesus there's evidence there that christians worship jesus and they kind of had reign of that basement and upper room and the holy spirit fell on them there and and um just the fulfillment of all that David was representing in the past was happening there in that area. So um, nowadays you can buy lots of necklaces with that messianic symbol on it. But um, so we close David's life. He dies. He's buried in the city of David. And uh, verse 12, Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly Established, just a foreshadowing of Jesus. There, Jesus, one day, His kingdom will be firmly established. And if you'll flip over to First Chronicles twenty nine twenty one, First Chronicles twenty nine twenty one, we kind of flash back to what we read two weeks ago in chapter one of First Kings, where Solomon is anointed king, and they made sacrifices to the Lord, and. It, There was a party, basically, because he's anointed king. In verse 21, they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the next day. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So they ate and drank before the Lord with great gladness on that day. And they made Solomon, the son of David, king. "'the second time, and anointed him before the Lord "'to be the leader, and Zadok to be priest. "'Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king "'instead of David his father, and prospered, "'and all Israel obeyed him. "'All the leaders and the mighty men "'and also all the sons of King David "'submitted themselves to King Solomon. "'So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly "'in the sight of all Israel.' and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. And you just see Solomon's, uh, that type of Christ that he is there, where one day Jesus will have bestowed on him such royal majesty as had never been on any king before him in Israel. And thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel, and the period he reigned over Israel was 40 years, 7 years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem, So he died a good old age, full of days and riches and honor, and Solomon his son reigned in his place. So David dies, Solomon's on the throne, the kingdom is firmly established, he's having such majesty bestowed on him as never before to a king in Israel. Now verse 13, uh, we see David's, or excuse me, Solomon's new king beginning with him cleaning house. And getting rid of all these kind of creepy, crummy guys that had always been thorns in his father's flesh. And uh, and so, uh, verse 13, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith. Now remember, who's Adonijah? See, I'm trying to get familiar with the names. That's why I'm rereading all these. And hopefully you guys, it's not just a, another language. Who's Adonijah? What's that? David's son. And what did Adonijah do? He thought he was. He tried to take over. He tried to manipulate the situation and tried to be the king when he knew that his younger brother Solomon was going to be king. So good job, you guys passed the quiz. Um, so Adonijah, the son of David, uh, the rebellious brother of Solomon, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, "Do you come peaceably?" And he said, "Peaceably." <laughs> so you can just picture the knock on the door, the sliding open of the looking area. Oh, you, do you come peaceably? She's just not like stoked at all that he's there. And he's not really stoked to like act like he loves her either. He's just peaceably. All right. So um, moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. <laughs> so there's not a lot of small t- talk between the two. It's just like, what? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, well, you know that the kingdom was mine and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. You know, and so he's just kind of like being kind of bitter and just kind of like, well, you know it was mine. And yeah, the Lord had him be the king, but all Israel was totally expecting me. And then you guys came in and just ruined everything. And it's like, yeah, you're not starting off well here, Adonijah. Verse 16, now I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And just a little tip for you guys, whenever somebody says that before, you know, having... Giving you the the question, like I'm gonna ask you something. Don't say no. Whatever you do, don't say no. Just, well, then don't ask. Thank you. <laughs> you know? But um, but you know, she fell into like we all do. Okay, say it. Say the question. And he said, "Please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife." So Bathsheba said, "Very well, I will speak to you for the king." So Adonijah comes and he wants it to seem like a very innocent question. You know, is His dad took this young virgin uh, from the Mount Tabor area two weeks ago we studied because he was cold and he couldn't keep warm, and so he just had her in a very pure way, uh, just lie with him to keep him warm at night. And uh, a very distinguished woman in the body came up to me the other week telling me I forgot to mention that she was a very hot young woman. And um, I said, wow, I hadn't thought of that. And you thought, I would have thought of that, but nope. I'm too pure to think thoughts like that. But yes, she, she was very warm young woman is the proper way to say this. And, um, and Adonijah notices that she's very warm. And so he wants to seem very innocent by just asking for this beautiful young girl who, you know, she's just young and she was married to an old guy. And I'd just like to be her husband. And can you ask if that's okay? And tries to make it seem very innocent. And Bathsheba says, ah, that seems okay. Very well. I'll speak for you to the king. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. What respect he had for her. He had a throne set up for her there. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. (laughs) So there's now she pulls that trick on him. And the king said to her, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. And King Solomon answered and said, now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him the kingdom also, for he's my older brother. For him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah. And uh, and so basically, he sees the scheme that Adonijah is trying to do. That by marrying his father's concubine would basically make him seem to the people of Israel in more authority than than Solomon. You know, because Solomon's just the son, but Adonijah was the son and married this concubine. It's wrong in more reasons than one. Let me tell you, but we won't get into all of that. But uh, David or Solomon sees right through it. And says, why don't you just ask the kingdom? Because that's exactly what he's trying to get you to ask for me. And you know what? Joab and all those other guys, they're all in on it. And so he says, now therefore, as the Lord lives, who's confirmed me and set me on the throne of David, my father, who's established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. So his brother Adonijah is killed. Um, And you remember last chapter, verse Uh, 50 through 53, Adonijah goes to the altar and grabs onto the horns of the altar and and just says, don't kill me, have mercy on me, don't kill me, even though I led this revolt to try to be king against you. And in verse 52 of chapter 1, Solomon said, if he proves himself to be a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar, and he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Just a lot of small talk with Adonijah. And, uh, and he's killed there because he never proved himself to be a righteous man. And so he's cleaning house here with all these guys that uh, were siding with Adonijah. So verse 26, to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Ananathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time. But you carried the ark of the Lord before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted, So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, and he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which was spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. And so basically, Abiathar uh, Abiathar is shelved from ministry. And I'll tell you, there's not a lot of things for a minister to the Lord that's worse punishment than being shelved, being put on the shelf, as we say in, in the ministry, because it's such a joy to serve the Lord. And to be shelved because of errors on your part, it's just, man, it is quite the correction. Then news came to Joab for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar, just like Adonijah did, ran to the tabernacle, grabbed onto the horns, and King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, thus says the king, come out. And he said, no, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought back word to the king saying, thus says Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said to him, do as he said and strike him down and bury him that you may take away from me from the house of my father the innocent blood, which Joab said. So normally, if a guy who accidentally killed someone was worried about someone coming and killing him, he'd go in there, grab grab the horns, and he'd find mercy. But even if someone who was guilty of premeditated murder... Uh, You know, they go in there and try to find mercy, but they could be struck down there at the altar. And so Joab, uh, so verse 32, the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him. and He was buried in his house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place over the army. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere, for it shall be on the day you go out and across the brook Kidron. Know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, the saying is good as my lord, the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Makah, king of Gath. And they, are told Shim- they told Shimei, saying, Look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei arose and saddled his donkey and went to Achish at Gath to see his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, No, for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die and you said to me, the word I've heard is good. Then why do you not keep the oath? Why have you not kept the oath, the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, moreover, Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledged all the wickedness that you did to return to my, to my father, David. Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down and he died. Thus, the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And so with both Joab and Shimei, these men who were against King David, it says, you know, you're going to be struck down and you're going to be killed because you are an enemy of David. But for the throne of David, it will be established forever in the Lord. And in a similar way, whoever's against the son of David, Jesus is going to be struck down They're gonna, they're gonna be judged. They're gonna have eternal torment upon them. But the house of Jesus, the kingdom of God is going to be established forever and ever. And as we have Stuart come on up and, and the worship team, an interesting thing as we go back to Joab's execution, just like Adonijah went in and grabbed hold of the horns looking for mercy, Joab went in and grabbed hold of the horns looking for mercy. Except there's no evidence in Joab at all. Of repentance. But a man that has never shown any form of respect. Or fear of God. Or any sort of relationship with God. There's, there's no care in Joab at all. In the last minute comes in and tries to perform a religious act. Tries to do a religious act to be saved. There's never any any form of. Repentance, and I was just reading a a Spurgeon sermon before I came over here, and and uh, Spurgeon was just showing the difference between outward ordinances and religion, and how Joab went and did the outward ordinances and did the religion, and yet he wasn't saved. But that if we here tonight will come to the altar, the altar of Jesus, where His blood was shed, and we grab hold of the horns of the altar for mercy. And we we recognize as we see the blood on the altar, you know, some of us even just taking communion tonight, being reminded of the blood on the altar, there's salvation in that sense for us, not because of our works or because we've done a religious deed like Joab tried to do, but in through faith, we fall at the mercy of the blood that was shed on the altar, that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be cleansed and just how we fall to all sorts of religion and acts to purify us before the lord and we think because we take communion we've been purified or because we attend the prayer meeting we've been purified or because we go to church and we sit under the teaching of the word that that's what purifies us from our sins or baptism or being an american or whatever but anything anything but faith in the blood of jesus is not sufficient And I love just this, I wanted to read more of this sermon, but we ran out of time. But I'll just read the the ending from Spurgeon. Whatever you depend on, apart from the blood and righteousness of Christ, away with it. Away with it. If you are even depending upon your own repentance and your faith, away with them. If you are looking to your own prayers or alms, I can only cry again, away with them. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Nothing but the atoning sacrifice. But if you come and lay your hand upon that, blessed shall you be. And so tonight as we just close and thinking of Joab just grabbing hold with all the religion that was in him, you know, appealing to his religious act, there was no mercy. But tonight, man, we can appeal not even to our own faith, but through our faith. We appeal to the blood that was shed on the cross To wash away every impurity that we've ever done. It's not by our works of righteousness that we're saved, but through the precious blood of Jesus. And so if you're here tonight and, and you're depending on your religion, you're repenting, you're depending upon that your parents and your grandparents went to church for decades, and that's what makes you a Christian, or you're depending upon the fact that you were baptized at one point, or you're depending upon the point, the, The fact that you've taken communion before. then I say to you tonight that it's insufficient. But what is sufficient is the blood of Jesus. And tonight you can ask the Lord to cleanse you with it. And all you have to do is just say, Lord, I come tonight and I grab the horns of your altar and I cry out for mercy. And just as Joab said, I die here. That Lord, if I were to die tonight, I die here. I die here at the mercy of your blood that was shed on the cross for me at Calvary, that my sins, which are as scarlet tonight, Lord, would you wash them as white as snow as far as the east is from the west, Lord, forget my sins. May they be that far from me and Lord Jesus tonight, not by works of righteousness, which I have done, but by the precious blood of Jesus, I'm saved tonight. And if you pray that in your heart, just. As best as you could, as you cried that out to the Lord from your heart, you're saved tonight and your sins are forgiven you and there's mercy and you won't be struck down. And if you prayed that in your heart, just the best way that you knew how, tonight there's just a party going on in heaven as your sins have been washed away and your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life.